Amen. Thanks for praying for us, Joanne. Uh, good morning, everyone. It's really nice to add to Simon's welcome, and it is really good to be back in the Great Vic pulpit after a couple of weeks uh, away. Uh, I can tell you there's no place I'd rather be uh, to be behind this pulpit with the Word of God open and with you in front of me. It is a real joy. So if you have your Bible, please do turn with me to Daniel chapter 8 uh, as we step back into our series in this amazing book. I want us to begin by remembering a little bit of what we have seen so far. We've seen that this book of Daniel is in our Bibles to stir up our courage so that we can live faithful and distinctive lives for God just where he has placed us. The book stirs this confidence by giving us a stunning vision of God's sovereign rule and unshakable kingdom. In the first half of the book, we've learned that the God of Daniel, our God, is the sovereign God who does according to all his will. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? We have read repeatedly in the first seven chapters that God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And where earthly kingdoms will rise and fall, the kingdom of God shall never be destroyed. And we have seen in Daniel... And his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, examples of men who lived courageous, faithful, and distinctive lives in light of this truth. And this is what the point of the book of Daniel is all about, that we learn as God's people to live faithful and distinctive lives in light of the knowledge that our God is sovereign, that he is good, and that he has a good plan. And we've seen that this reminder of God's sovereignty would have been so encouraging to the first readers of the book of Daniel in and around 500 AD. That is when this book would have been first circulated around little fragmented Jewish communities who had come back into Israel after their period of exile in Babylon. They would have been feeling fragile and weak Powerful nations were vying for control all around them, and then arrived the book of Daniel, a reminder that though everything in the world can look like chaos, our God reigns. He is sovereign. He is good. He has a good plan for his people. And we have said repeatedly that the message of the book of Daniel is not just for them then, it is also for us now. I read at the start of this series, Romans 15, 4, where in the New Testament, Paul wrote, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So we need this big vision of a sovereign God in our lives today because we all know that life can be tough. We can feel confused when we look out sometimes on the chaos of our world, or even when we look sometimes at the chaos of our own lives, we can be disheartened. And we need to be reminded constantly that our God reigns, that he is 
sovereign, that he is good, that he does have a good plan for the world and for us, his people, right down to every individual. And so this morning, as we enter back into the series, in chapter 8, we're coming to the last section of the book, a section that hangs together very well from chapter 8 through to 12. We come to a series of visions that are given to help God's people set their expectations rightly for some of the challenges that accompany doing life in a fallen world. A series of visions that can sometimes be a bit confusing, dreamlike, and bizarre, and yet there is a clear purpose in these visions. There's a clear purpose in this section of the book to help us set our expectations right for what life and faithful Christian living will look like in a fallen world. To illustrate what this last section of the book is all about, let me share a story of a family journey we took in our car last summer. We uh, got the uh, car from Belfast down, uh, we drove down to Dublin, got the ferry from Dublin to Hollyhead. We were driving from Hollyhead across to a little uh, English town called Henley-on-Thames, which is about an hour west of London. So the journey was about five and a half hours driving time, which for us in Northern Ireland is a long way. For our American friends, I know that's not much, but for us, that's, you need to certainly pack your snacks. So 20 minutes in from Hollyhead en route, three children in the back. Daddy, you know what's coming. Are we nearly there yet? And I said, yep, don't worry, guys. We're, we're, I'm all optimistic at this stage of the journey. Um, we're getting there. And another 20 minutes passed. And Grace, Daddy, are we nearly there yet? Again, I'm, I'm saying, yeah, we're making good progress. It's going well, yeah. Another 20 minutes. Are we nearly there yet, Daddy? Come on, this has been ages. And I said, yeah, we're closer than the last time. And then we had some traffic going around Birmingham. And I realized, right, I need to level with them. So we stopped for a little uh, snack, and I just said, guys, look, I'll be honest with you. We have a long journey ahead of us, at least another four and a half hours. It's going to take a long time, so you need to just settle down, settle in, and be ready for the long haul. Set your mind. We're going for a long journey. And that is, in many ways, the message of this closing section of the book of Daniel. You see, Daniel and his people had real hopes that soon they were going to return from exile. Soon they were going to get into Israel. Soon they were going to arrive and everything would be good again. They'd get their homes back. They'd have their old lifestyle back and everything would be great. But in these visions, God was saying to them, look, when you get back to the land, there's actually going to be further challenges and instability. It's going to keep coming. Your job is to settle in and make faithfulness your goal in all the changing circumstances of life. God was setting the expectations of his people in these visions, saying, look, when you get to the, the land again, it's, it's not going to be all easy. There's actually going to be quite a long journey that's going to call for robust discipleship as you wait for the fullness of the kingdom to come. So settle in. This is a long journey. That is what God is saying in the last section of Daniel. And though on first reading, 
Chapter 8 can seem a bit confusing. I wonder what was going on in your own heart and mind as you were hearing Aubrey read through the text with the ram and the goats and the little horn. Though initially it can seem a bit weird and confusing, when you break the the chapter down into its parts, you will find that the chapter is actually very clearly organized. In verses 1 to 14, Daniel has a vision with three main characters in it, a ram, a goat, and a little horn, and we'll see what those things represent in a moment. Then, in verses 15 to 26, we get the interpretation of the vision that Daniel has had. The vision and the three main characters are explained, at least in part. Then, in verse 27, we get Daniel's response to the vision, and we will see that that is really significant and that there are some key lessons for us in his response today. So what we're going to do this morning is walk down through this vision and its interpretation, and I just want to draw out two lessons on what we are to expect as we seek to live faithful lives in a fallen world. Okay, so this is all about seeking to live a faithful life in a fallen world. Two lessons from Daniel 8, and then we'll close by looking at some lessons from Daniel's response in verse 27. So, Lesson number one. Sorry, that's a bit small. As you seek to live a faithful life for God in a fallen world, you should expect that there will be general times of turbulence and instability. Expect this. Daniel tells us in the first two verses, if you look down with me at them, that it is the third year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, And he has a vision, where in the vision he found himself by a canal called the Ulai Canal in Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire, modern-day Iran. In verse 3, Daniel, we're told, lifts up his eyes. He sees in his vision a ram standing on the bank of this canal. It has two high horns with one slightly higher than the other. So imagine um, this uh, animal, this ram, one big tall horn, one not as tall. And it charges, we're told in verse 4, westward, northward, and southward. It's very powerful. No beast could stand before this ram. It did all as it pleased and became great. But then, just like what happens to us in dreams, the whole scene suddenly shifts. In verse 5, Daniel says, as he was considering what this ram was all about, he saw then in his vision a male goat come racing in from the west at high speed with a big horn in the middle of his head. Now, horns symbolize strength in Old Testament uh, apocalyptic literature. In verse 6, this Goat charges at the ram. That's quite a vision, isn't it? Smashed the ram to pieces. In verse 8, we're told then that the goat became exceedingly great, but then at the height of his strength, he was broken, and then four other horns grew up in its place. Now you've got to just step back from one and just ask, what is that all about? Well, here's something that is really helpful. In the interpretation section of the vision... We're told what these animals represent. This is really helpful. So verse 20, just look over there. 
As for the ram you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So after the Babylonian Empire rose a new empire called the Medo-Persian Empire. And so we know that this ram represents the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire. The horns represent the kings and leaders of this empire. And verse 20 continues, And the goat is the king of Greece. We know historically that after the Medo-Persian Empire ascended to power, it actually collapsed with the rise of Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire. And the great horn, verse 20, between his eyes is the first king. Now we have to pause again and ask, what would Daniel have understood all this to mean? Well, at the start of chapter 9, we read that Daniel knew that the time was soon coming for him and his people to return to their land after their period of exile. The prophet Jeremiah had said it would be about 70 years where the Israelites would be in exile and then they would return to their land. Well, Daniel knew that that 70 years had pretty much all but passed. But here in this vision, Daniel learns that even when he and his people are back in their glorious land, a new empire will rise. It will be bent on conquest and domination. In verse 4, that little sentence, Ram would charge westward, northward, and southward, that summarizes about 200 years of Persian history. All in that wee verse, the conquest of the Persian Empire. And remember what happened to God's people during the rise of the Persian Empire. Think of the book of Esther. What happened under the Persian king, Xerxes? the near annihilation of the whole Jewish race because of the wicked plot of Haman. And so Daniel was learning. Wow, we thought after the Babylonians, we'd get back into Israel and everything would be great. And here God says, sorry, there's going to be actually more turbulence and more instability even when you're back in the land. And after the Persians, another empire would rise in its place. And we know now from this point of history that this great horn on the goat, it represents Alexander the Great. He invaded the Persian Empire with great swiftness. He fought in a battle known as the Battle of the Granicus River and he crossed the river with his forces and blew the Persians out of the water. Daniel didn't know these details like we know them now looking back. All he knew was that this vision was God letting him know there are turbulent times yet ahead for my people. I wonder if you ever had one of those moments where your expectations were really high for something only to find the reality of your experience didn't live up to your expectations. I remember the first time our son Hudson went to McDonald's. He had watched the adverts of these beautiful Big Macs that were all big and spongy and lovely. And I remember him opening the box and he said, Daddy, what's this? And it just looked like a floppy, squished, sorry excuse for a burger. Poor fella realized at that moment, uh, life and advertising doesn't always represent the reality. It's really disheartening 
when your reality fails to meet your expectations. Think of what God is doing for Daniel in this vision. Think of what God is doing for his people in this vision. He's kindly setting his people's expectations. You imagine in 500 AD, or 500 BC, sorry, those little Jewish communities feeling so fragmented, weak and fragile, with the rise of great nations all around them. And they just felt so weak. And then they start reading the book of Daniel. Yeah, that the empires are going to keep rising and falling. And you've got to learn how to do your discipleship, how to live faithfully in the midst of all that turbulence. One commentator writes, God was essentially telling his people, you're going to have to plod on through a long stretch of this troubled stuff we call history as you wait for the fullness of my kingdom to come. And we recognize, don't we, that Jesus taught us as his people something similar in the Gospels. In Mark 13, 7 to 8, Jesus said to his disciples, you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And then Jesus said, these are not the signs of the end. They're birth pangs, groans of a fallen creation. This is the backdrop you should expect as Christians as you seek to live faithful kingdom lives just where God has placed you. You see, we need to understand that faithful Christian living is lived out in a backdrop of turbulence and instability. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. God was steadying his people so that when, the things would get, that when things would get tough, they wouldn't be surprised, but they would say, yeah, God has told us to expect this. This world calls for robust discipleship and a deep confidence in the God who alone is the stability of our times. So for us here this morning, in light of this chapter and in light of what Jesus taught us in the Gospels, we have to set our expectations rightly. We will experience, as Christians, general times of turbulence and instability in our lives. We will see wars. We will see corruption. We will see difficulty and challenges and areas of persecution in the world. In our own lives, we will have times where things are good, but we will also have times where things are really hard. And God in his word just sets our expectations so that when the fiery, difficult trials come, we won't be unsettled thinking, what's going on? Instead, we'll know, yeah, this is just about what God said we should expect in the world. So that's the first thing God is doing in this revelation. He's telling his people, look, you've got to have to learn to live out your discipleship in the context of, of turbulence and instability. You're going to feel fragile and weak. But don't worry. Steady on. Keep looking to the future. Keep looking to your hope. Keep trusting in the Lord. That's the message of the first part of this vision. But now we move on to the second lesson that we draw from this chapter. As we seek to live faithful lives in this fallen world, we should also expect not just general times of turbulence and instability, we should actually ex expect specific periods 
of very real spiritual pressure and persecution. We should expect more pressure to build on us as Christians, forcing us to compromise our convictions. We should expect the pressure to build. That's where we go now in the next part of the vision in verse 9. You'll see here that the emphasis shifts from the goat and the ram to the little horn that Daniel sees rising up from the collapse of the goat's empire. Now, this little horn, again, symbolizes a king, symbolizes a king of great strength, one who would grow in in power and influence. In verse 10, this horn aggresses against the heavenly realm and the earthly realm, seeking to trample both God and his people. In verse 11, this little horn king assumes the place of God forces the cessation of worship, takes away the offering of sacrifice, overthrows the sanctuary in Jerusalem. Verse 12, throws truth to the ground. After seeing this part of the vision, in verse 13, Daniel then hears a holy one speaking and asking, how long will this period of Specific persecution go on for, and the Holy One responds in verse 14, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Now, once again, we're really helped by the interpretation section of our chapter. We're told in verse 22 that after the Greek king is broken after his empire collapsed. And we know that Alexander the Great conquered the known world by the age of about 32, and then he died suddenly just before his 33rd birthday. He was the ruler of all, the most powerful uh, ruler of the most powerful empire, and then boom, he died. Nothing was that well organized. That's a generalization. And his kingdom then was divided into four territories. Four leaders led these four territories that became the four territories of the former Greek empire. And in verse 23, we're told that later on, from one of these territories would arise a king of bold face. This king that would arise from one of these four territories would become a powerful leader. Verse 24, he would destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. He would persecute God's people. He would rise up, we're told, in arrogance to defy God himself and the host of heaven, but then he would be broken by no human hand. And that should remind you of chapter 2, the stone not cut by any human hand that shatters all rebellious human empires and establishes the kingdom of God. Now, again, we have to step back and think we have a vantage point here where we can look back and understand what this all, how this was all fulfilled. This little horn, this king who would rise to power from one of the territories in the Greek Empire, this was all fulfilled in a man named Antiochus IV, who named himself, liked to name himself, Antiochus Epiphanes, which means God manifest. That's what he called himself. He came to power in 175 BC, and for various reasons that we'll not get into, he developed an absolute hatred for the faith and practices of God's people Israel. 
He wanted to press an attack on Egypt, but the rising Roman Empire told him to back off, and he was angry. Historians say that he took out his anger on the Jews in Israel. He sacked Jerusalem. He enforced a paganization program designed to corrupt and decimate every part of Israel's faith and practice. He wanted to completely annihilate God's people and their religion. He slaughtered Jews who assembled for worship on Sabbath. He banned all temple worship, shut down the sanctuary. He banned circumcision. If anyone was found gathering on the Sabbath or if a child was found circumcised, that child would be executed and those Sabbath worshipers would be all slaughtered. He forced Jews to make offerings to pagan gods. He forced them to eat pig flesh. He defiled the temple by offering unclean animals on the altar, and he erected an idol of Zeus on the altar of burnt offering. Now, we can look back and see how this passage in Daniel 8 was fulfilled in this man, Antiochus IV, how he rose from little beginnings and wormed his way into a position of influence. But Daniel wouldn't have known all that. But there are three things that he learned from this second part of the vision. Number one, there would be a specific time of acute persecution ahead and tribulation for God's people. That's why in verse 27 at the end of our vision, Daniel's completely overcome, appalled at what he's heard. He knew there was going to be a really hard time of tribulation ahead. And think of all Daniel had gone through. Think of the persecution that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had gone through. Thrown to the fiery furnace. Daniel thrown to the lions. He thought when we get back to the land, it'll all be good. And here God's saying there's actually more tribulation and difficulty ahead. Second lesson he would have learned from the vision. Though there is a specific time of tribulation ahead, it will be for a set period of time fixed by God, it will be a limited period. Verse 14, we read that the period would be for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, to try and work out exactly what this time period means is not what the text calls us to do. You can work it out all you want and think, is that 2,300 days? Is it, does that represent something? Does that represent something else? We know that's not what we're to do because in the interpretation section of the vision, we are given no interpretation of what the 2,300 days means. If we were to go into the details, it would be there. The point of the time that's given is to tell us that this period of tribulation and persecution may be long, but it is limited, fixed, by God. That is the point of the time reference in the passage. Daniel would have learned there's a period of tribulation that lies ahead that's, that's fairly acute, but it's a set period of time, set by God. Then the third lesson he would have learned from this vision is at the end of this time of persecution, God would finally and fully break off those who brought this oppression and fully restore his people and worship to its rightful state. In verse 28, we're told that the little horn would be broken, but by no human hand. God would bring an end to this rebellion, and he would bring his people to a place 
of eternal rest. Now, once again, we need to step back and ask, what are we to make of this? Was this just for Daniel and his people then? And does the fulfillment by Antiochus IV exhaust this chapter? Or in some way, does this apply to us today? That's the key question we have to ask. And I believe this passage absolutely applies to us today for two reasons. First, because of the way the angels explain that the vision is for the time of the end in verse 17 and 19. Verse 17, Daniel's told this vision is for the time of the end. Verse 19, it refers to the appointed time of the end. Now, this seems to point to more than just something that would happen in the first century BC. This seems to speak of the end of time as we know it, something that will happen just before the return of Christ. It's really helpful at this point for us to remember that Old Testament prophecies usually have what we call two horizons of fulfillment, a near horizon and a far horizon of fulfillment. Antiochus IV, he is what we could call the near horizon or the near fulfillment of this prophecy. This prophesied persecution is historical. It did come to be fulfilled in Antiochus IV. But that all was foreshadowing the far horizon or the far fulfillment of this time of tribulation and persecution for God's people. Though this whole vision of Daniel chapter 8 is, is historical, it also points to a pattern we should expect to see in history until the return of Christ. We should still expect to see general turbulence and instability in the world. We should expect to see the rise and fall of empires, fighting among nations for conquest and domination. Just look at Ukraine or Syria or Central African Republic or Yemen. We should expect to see different versions of Antiochus IV to rise at different points of history. We should expect to find Nero's persecuting the church, Hitler's trying to eradicate Jews, Stalin's, King Jong Un's in North Korea putting great pressure on the church. We should expect governments that will persecute and put the squeeze on Christians. And we should, I believe, also expect that all of this will lead to a climactic period of difficulty for Christians shortly before Christ returns, often referred to as the tribulation. So because of the way the angels speak to Daniel and say, this is, this is about the end. I'm not willing to say this was exhausted and completed in Antiochus and has no more relevance to us today. No, this foreshadows the far horizon, the far fulfillment that will come in the future. But I said that there were two reasons for why I believe this applies to us today and we should see a pattern for us today. And the second reason is this. Jesus taught us. 
to apply Daniel's vision in this way in the Gospels. Jesus told us what to expect just before his return. When he spoke of the events that would take place before his return, he spoke of a period of very real tribulation for God's people. He actually referred to the period of tribulation that Daniel spoke of in Matthew 24, 15. Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation, Daniel refers to the transgression of desolation. In our chapter, the, few, the, the next chapters we're going to see him speak of the abomination of desolation, this end time tribulation. Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, you will know the end is near. He said there would be tribulation, but that at just the right time, he would appear on the clouds with great power and glory and establish his kingdom and bring an end to all fallenness and brokenness. He would fully and finally restore his people. So we are to read Daniel chapter 8 and we are to see a pattern a foreshadow of what we should expect as we seek to live faithful, distinctive lives of discipleship in a fallen world. We should expect instability and turbulence. We should expect acute times when there will be persecution of the church. And I believe we should expect there to be a climactic time of difficulty. And at just the right time, and I use my language very intentionally, Christ will return and set up his kingdom and restore his people forever. So, what are we to do with all this? How are we to live in light of this information? Because you could easily hear that and go home scared, intimidated. Well, I don't think that's what God wants for us this morning. So I want us to look now in the third and final part of our passage at verse 27. Daniel's response to the vision and the interpretation. I want us to learn three lessons from Daniel's response in this verse that will help us to respond rightly to how we should live in light of this revelation. Here's the first lesson I want us to learn from verse 27. First, We are not to be unsettled by the truth of this vision. After speaking of tribulation ahead for the church, Jesus said in John 16, 1, I've told you all these things to keep you from falling away. Isn't that wonderful? In a sense, that could be a summary statement for the purpose of Daniel chapter 8. God's saying, I've told you these things beforehand to keep you from falling away. I'm setting your expectations so you'll be ready for robust, durable discipleship in a difficult world. But remember what Jesus said at the end of John 16. I love this. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That is wonderful. That is our hope. In this world, you're going to have difficulty. But Jesus says, I've overcome the world. 
In the days ahead where I'll come and I will demonstrate my rule, my reign, my sovereignty, and all those little horns, those proud kings will be cut down to size. So take hope. Don't be afraid. Don't be unsettled. The Lord reigns. God is helpfully setting our expectations so that in the hard times we won't be surprised and undone. Don't fear, even in the hard times. God is at work always to sanctify, to refine, to help us. He has, never, he has said he will never leave us, he'll never forsake us. No matter how hard it gets, God will stay with us and hold us fast. So we are not to be unsettled by turbulence and stability. Second, we should recognize that we live with partial understanding of the future. Look down at verse 27 at the end. Daniel says, I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So he had received an interpretation. He understood something of the vision, but he couldn't understand really what, what it would, how it would all pan out. And I think that's instructive for us. We have to recognize that as we look to the future, as we think of end times and the return of Christ, we are people who live now with only partial understanding of the future. We recognize that in the Bible, we are given the contours of what to expect. But how everything will play out in the future, we don't know for sure. And this should lead us to be very humble about our end times theology. But as well as being humble, we should also be confident. God knows the end. He knows his purposes for his people. He has fixed the times. He has set the limits on our trials and tribulations. And he has said he will always be with us, even to the end. So we move forward, seeking to live faithful lives, recognizing we only have partial understanding of how the end will come but we have full understanding that God knows and God will do what is right. The third lesson that we learn from Daniel's response uh, is just so, so helpful. It's simply this. We should be busy about the king's business. Verse 27. I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. Isn't that incredible? He doesn't retreat into a cave and say, well, I'm just going to stop living my life. He doesn't live on some visionary high as if he was above the mundane. He just went back to work the next day, or a few days, and he kept living a faithful and distinctive life for the true king of kings. Yes, certainly he meant there he went back to working for King Belshazzar, the pagan king, in, in his employment as a civil servant. But we can see through that because Daniel was living for a greater king, the king of kings and the lord of lords. He received this revelation. And when he recovered, 
he just went back to work. And he started living, he continued to live a faithful and distinctive life, being salt and light just where God had placed him, knowing that whatever lay ahead for God's people, it was in God's hands. God was sovereign. God would always be with him. He'd already been through a lot of tribulation, and he was ready for the faithful God to carry him through whatever tribulation lay ahead. But he knew that whatever would happen, he was on the side of the kingdom that would never be defeated. That is so, so deeply encouraging. I was chatting to my friend Peter yesterday, and he shared this story, and I found it so helpful because I've had this experience myself. He said he, was, um, he had a friend who uh, was at church, and there was a big American football game on, and uh, he uh, didn't want to know the, the final result, if his team had won or not. So he didn't look at his phone in the afternoon uh, as he was eating his dinner. He didn't want to talk to anyone because he didn't want anyone to accidentally tell him that his team won. And so he got out of church uh, and he uh, had avoided his phone, he had avoided everything and he got home and just as he got home his neighbor just shouted, hey Dan, great that our team won. And he was like, no, because he so wanted to watch it live or he wanted to watch it as if it was live so that he didn't know the result. And he said it totally changed the way he watched the game because he knew in the end his team was going to win. And so in every fumble, in every dark moment, in every moment where it seemed like the wheels were coming off, he knew in the end his team would win. And it totally changed the way he watched the game. I think that's kind of like what's going on here. God wants us to understand, in the end, the lamb wins. And in all of your life through the turbulence of this world, in all the general times of turbulence, in all the good times, and in all the really hard and painful times, you know the end. God's kingdom will win and will never be destroyed. And so you're to learn to live and do your faithful, robust discipleship in that context with that knowledge burning hope into your heart and mind. So we don't retreat into a cave we don't live on a visionary high as if we're above the mundane. No. Tomorrow, you go back to work. And you seek to be the best Christian you can be in your workplace. You seek to be salt and light just where God has placed you, among your family, among your friends, knowing that whatever comes, our times are in God's hands and the future is secure. You know, in essence, the point of this chapter is to tell us this. Simply make faithfulness your goal in all the changing circumstances of life. Do that one thing. Strive to be faithful just where God has placed you and just in the circumstances God has placed you. If you're going through grief, one calling, be faithful. If you're going through health concerns, one calling, be faithful. If you're looking at your children's lives and you're just so concerned, you just keep being faithful. If you're not sure of your own future and you feel nervous or anxious about your job or your employment or about what's ahead or you feel yourself getting older and it gives you concerns, just remember again, one call, be faithful where God has placed you, busy about the king's business 
knowing you're on the victory side and knowing that God has got the future in his hands. You don't have to worry about it. So great Vic, steady on. Keep going. The best is still ahead of us. Let's pray. Father, it is incredible that a vision that was given to Daniel all those years ago could have such relevance and encouragement for us today. As we read in that passage in Romans 15, this was written for us, the church, so that through the enduring encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. It's been my prayer today, and it is now, Father, that you would grow our courage and our confidence and our hope so that we would be stirred up and encouraged to keep living faithful lives just where you've placed us, knowing that the hope of the kingdom is ahead and that in all of our trials and tribulations, we know that you're at work winning for us and gaining for us an eternal weight of glory that will far outweigh them all. One day we will see in the destination that the journey of faithfulness was worth it. And until that day, Lord, keep us steady. We feel the growing pressure here in Northern Ireland to conform. We see liberalization everywhere. We see secularism encroaching on the church everywhere. We see people persecuting and putting us under pressure to say, let go of those archaic moral views come into line with this modern age. But, oh Lord, you are the one who defines morality. And we want to continue to faithfully walk with you no matter what. So in all the changing circumstances of life, oh Father, help us to be faithful, remembering the example of Jesus who went through the cross and death and resurrection, remaining faithful and winning for us a kingdom, a salvation, a hope beyond death. And I just pray today that each one of us would go out aware of the hope we have in Jesus Christ and that we would go out filled with that hope to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're going to respond by singing together of our rock-solid hope. In Christ, uh, our, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Christ, our cornerstone. Let's stand together and sing.
may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine on you and to be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. In Christ Jesus our Lord, amen.